Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be together to worship God. Our call to worship comes from the first letter of John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands and have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. And now let's come together in prayer. Let us pray. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, Saviour, Intercessor, Friend, we come to you now with our prayers. On this new day, at the start of a new week, we have much to be thankful for. Today, we will have enough food to eat, enough clothes to keep us warm, enough shelter to keep us safe, enough love to make us feel valued. In fact, we will have more than enough. We will have plenty. Lots of people will show us love. Rooms will stand unused in many of our homes. Unworn clothes hang in our wardrobes. And our cupboards are full of food. Help us to be grateful for the blessings we enjoy. Help us not to be greedy, always wanting more. Help us to be generous, sharing what we have with others. Jesus, man from Nazareth, you experienced hunger and cold and loneliness and pain. Christ, God's anointed one, you alleviate suffering and emptiness and regret. Jesus the Christ, in you is love made perfect and lived among people like us, bringing hope and healing. So hear our prayers and help us walk more closely with you. Amen. The first of the three readings is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. He always had the nature of God, but he did not think that by force he should try to remain equal with God. Instead of this, of his own free will, he gave up all he had, and took the nature of a servant. 
He became like a human being and appeared in human likeness. He was humble and walked the path of obedience all the way to death, his death on the cross. For this reason, God raised him to the highest place above and gave him the name that is greater than any other name. And so, in honour of the name of Jesus, all beings in heaven, on earth and in the world below will fall on their knees and all will openly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Second reading is from Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 20. The person and work of Christ. Christ is the visible likeness of the invisible God. He is the firstborn son, superior to all created things. For through him, God created everything in heaven and on earth, the seen and the unseen things, including spiritual powers, lords, rulers, and authorities. God created the whole universe through him and for him. Christ existed before all things, and in union with him, all things have their proper place. He is the head of his body, the church. He is the source of the body's life. He is the firstborn son who was raised from death in order that he alone might have the first place in all things. For it was by God's own decision that the son has in himself the full nature of God. Through the son, then, God decided to bring the whole universe back to himself. God made peace through his son's blood on the cross and so brought back to himself all things, both on earth and in heaven. And the final reading is from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. Peter's declaration about Jesus. Jesus went to the territory near the town of Caesarea Philippi, where he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Some say John the Baptist, they answered. Others say Elijah while others say Jeremiah or some other prophet. What about you, he asked them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. slightly wary talking about Christian doctrine when I look around and see how many proper theologians there are in this congregation, but never mind. Today we're looking at the doctrine of Jesus Christ. The idea that, in the words of the fourth gospel, the world be- word became flesh and dwelled among us, has fascinated and bewildered Christians since the earliest times with incredible amounts of energy being invested in trying to understand or to explain how a person could be simultaneously fully human and fully divine. There are some scholars who will dispute the historicity of the Jesus stories, but even so, it is generally accepted that a man from Nazareth called Jesus, or actually more likely Yeshua, since he was Jewish and Jesus is a Greek word, it is generally accepted that this man existed and exercised an itinerant ministry in first century Galilee. 
Certainly the three Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism and Islam, which account for almost half of the current world population, (coughs) remain convinced of his existence and his significance. And in that half of the world, half of the world's population will be some people with brains the size of planets, not just ordinary people like me. But what do we actually know about Jesus? How much is shaped by pictures like those we've already seen, or in books, in films, rather than the scriptural record or even authentic Christian theology? What we're going to do to start off with this morning is a bit of interaction, because you've all been very sleepy this morning, so I'm feeling doubly justified in doing this to you. When you came in, you should have found a little daft quiz on your seat. If not, hopefully somebody next to you's got one. I want you to take two minutes with the person next to you to do that quiz. And for the benefit of the podcast, I will quickly read out those questions. And some of them are deliberately there to trip you up and trick you. So ten questions, a couple of minutes with your neighbour. When, in whose reign, and where was Jesus born? Where did Jesus grow up? What colour eyes did Jesus have? Who were the members of Jesus' immediate family? What language or languages did Jesus hear spoken? Where was Jesus based for most of his adult life? What did Jesus do for a living before he began his ministry? Was Jesus a practicing Jew? How long did Jesus' ministry last? And how old was Jesus when he died? So two minutes, person next to you, have a go at those questions. And stop. Okay, that's your two minutes up. Doesn't matter how far you got, whether you did all of them, whether you did some of them. Conversations are probably more important than precise things. The fact is that the answers to some of those questions can be found in the Bible. We know where and roughly when Jesus was born. You have a pretty good idea where he grew up. The names of some of his brothers are mentioned, and we're told that he had sisters, and so on. There are other things that we can deduce from the context of when Jesus lived, the historical context. So, for example, we can be fairly sure that the languages he heard would have included Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. But others we haven't got a clue about. We don't know what colour Jesus' eyes were. We don't know what he did for a living before he started his itinerant ministry. Now that might seem blatantly obvious, but it's really important because it reminds us of the particularity of the man Jesus of Nazareth, who lived in a particular place at a particular time with particular consequences. I don't know how many of you remember, a few years ago there was a bit of a hoo-ha about an American Old Testament scholar, I think he was, who put this great paper together and, you know, sort of very erudite and he said blah, 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 blah. 
And somebody else stood up and said, yeah, but you've done that using an English translation of the Bible, not the original Hebrew. And this man said, well, if English was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. (laughs) You see, the Jesus of history did not speak English. For one good reason, if no other, English didn't exist. We don't know what language people in these islands spoke all those 2,000 years ago, but it certainly wasn't English as we speak it today, because English has been influenced by French and German and Norse and Scots and Welsh and all sorts of other languages over time. Quite a kind of a polyglot language, really. The Jesus of history had no knowledge of the existence of Australia or the structure of DNA, because in first century Palestine, nobody knew either of those things. Now, that probably sounds really obvious that somebody living in first century Palestine didn't know Australia existed or what the structure of DNA was. But every now and then, a very well-educated Christian scholar will say, but Jesus did. If we want to build up a picture in our minds of the man Jesus of Nazareth, we have to accept that he lived in a real place, in a real time, with real limits. There are extra-biblical documents that speak about Jesus the Nazarene, or Jesus the Galilean. But the most comprehensive record we have is that found in the four canonical Gospels. And each one of those writers has its own distinct emphasis, pointing to a man who lived around 2,000 years ago. But who, or perhaps what, is this Jesus? It's a really important question. Who is this Jesus in history? And I think this question is asked explicitly, well, it is asked explicitly in the three Gospels, but the attempts to answer that question can be found in all four Gospels. Upstairs in my office, I forgot to bring it down, I've got a book about that thick, big blue book, called The Historical Jesus by Gert Thiessen and Antoinette Merz. The um, scholar people will have heard of them. They, in that book, come up with a number of ways in which Jesus is represented in the Gospels. We have Jesus who is a charismatic. doesn't mean he did a lot of this. It means he had charisma. He was somebody who attracted other people to himself. And if we read those Gospel stories, we get that sense, don't we, that people flocked to meet this Jesus. He was interesting. That Jesus was a prophet, a person who spoke from God, who was somehow inspired by God to speak specially. That Jesus was, big word coming up, a thaumatogist. You impressed? A thaumatogist. A wonder worker, a healer. We hear stories of miracles and healings, of exorcisms, which make perfect sense in that first century context. That is how Jesus was understood by some. Jesus as a poet or a storyteller 
We all have our best-loved parables, the stories that Jesus told. One of my minister friends occasionally likes to wind up his congregations. He says, do you know what? Not everything in the Bible's true. Some of it's made up. Because Jesus told stories, and those stories were parables, and they weren't true. They were stories. Jesus as a teacher of ethics. Jesus as a teacher, somebody who taught the way to live. And Jesus as a martyr. All of those relate to the human Jesus. He was a complicated and intriguing person. Nobody will ever dispute that. But what did the people who he met think about him? He could have been all of the above, a charismatic prophet, thaumaturgist, poet, teacher, martyr, and still be just another human being. Actually, he couldn't be just another human being if you were all those things, but he could have been a human being and no more. The short reading we heard this morning from Matthew's Gospel, along with its parallels in Mark and Luke, is very revealing. One day, Jesus was out with his closest followers and he asked them, Who do people say that I am? And a number of answers are postulated. Some people think that Jesus is John the Baptist. Why might they think that? Well, the two cousins were definitely a similar age. It's possible they had a physical resemblance. Perhaps they thought that John hadn't actually been killed by Herod and that Jesus was just John using another name. Or perhaps, as we find hints of elsewhere in the Gospels, people thought that John had been resurrected from the dead and that Jesus was the resurrected John. Some people thought that he was Elijah the prophet. The significance of that being that the return of the prophet Elijah would herald the messianic age. Others, using similar logic, think that he could be Jeremiah. Now then, here's a test for you good uh, proddy nonconformists, as you all are. Why might they think he was Jeremiah? Well, you need an apocrypha to answer that one. If you look in what we call the Book of Maccabees, one of the sort of deuterocanonical books, the prophet Jeremiah is listed as one of the heralds of the Messianic Age. So that's what people, some people thought Jesus was. He was another prophet announcing the coming of the Messiah. These views might seem a little bit strange to us. You know, that you'd see somebody and think they were a dead person resurrected. Or you'd see somebody and think they were somebody who lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago come back. But we need to remember that in that worldview then, that was quite a reasonable explanation the distinction between natural and supernatural the distinction between literal and mythical wasn't understood so differently in those days as they are nowadays there was nothing a bit daft about these assertions about Jesus 
What is very clear is that Jesus is not seen as just an ordinary man. It seems he's widely recognised as having some kind of religious significance. But what? The supplementary question that Jesus asks takes us right to the heart of the matter. And you, disciples, who do you say that I am? Whether Peter speaks for himself or whether, as some scholars suggest, he speaks as a spokesperson for the inner circle, his answer is that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. He is more than a preacher, teacher, healer, poet or charismatic. He is the one in whom the promise of Messiah is Fulfilled. Had we read that passage from Mark's Gospel, we'd have had Jesus then going, shh, don't tell anyone. But we didn't. We read it from Matthew, in which they are not told to keep that quiet. But why might Mark, Jesus have said to them to keep that quiet in Mark's Gospel? Well, when Simon Peter, interesting that he gets his full name here, When Simon Peter names Jesus as Christ, he's not just giving him a nickname. He's not just saying, well, you're a bit like the Messiah. He's not giving him a surname. He is saying something incredibly, incredibly significant and important. That this man, Jesus, whom they know and who lives among them, is the Christ of God. And so he sort of embeds in Jesus incredible religious significance and cultural expectation. The Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. For Jews, then as now, the arrival of Messiah would herald a new age. So when Peter said to Jesus, you are Christ, Messiah, then either that was pretty close to blasphemy or it was pure prophecy. He was either completely right or the poor bloke had flipped, totally deluded. I think because we hear the term so often and because so much Christian religious language is careless and lazy we lose the sense of wonder and profound theological significance of the name Jesus Christ. It was interesting when I was choosing hymns for today. It took a lot of work to find hymns that actually say Jesus Christ, not just Jesus or Christ. There's so much significance in that name as it stands. The name Jesus referring to a historical person Located in a human body in a specific place and time. And the name Christ, which you can't so neatly or conveniently define, since its referent is explicitly divine and beyond any category that we might like to come up with or use. So we have a big theological challenge on our hands. 
We have a set of stories in the Gospels about a man who lived on earth. And we have a faith declaration that he is simultaneously divine. So how do we hold those together? How do we make sense of that? Well, it won't surprise you to know that the first few centuries of Christianity, an awful lot of energy went into trying to make sense of this. And there were some incredible debates over tiny details. I remember of one particular doctrine lesson where we had the debate over whether it was homoousia or homousia, one letter O in the name, word that is used to describe whether Jesus was like being with God or the same being with God. And really clever people spent ages and ages and ages on these debates. If you want to find out more, then look at any of the theology textbooks I suggested last week. But for for today, we're going to stay firmly rooted in scripture and two attempts by the early church to consider this incredible mystery. I could have picked any number of passages to direct our thoughts, but the two I chose are two that scholars think either are or are derived from early Christian hymns. Now, it's not the place all the time to comment on the quality of theology, or as it says in my notes, lack thereof, that underlies many popular hymns and songs written throughout Christian history, let alone the hymn-singing debates occupied our Baptist forebears. But it is perhaps worth noting how much what we sing subtly shapes what we believe. A lot of people take more of their theology from the songs and hymns they use on a Sunday than they do from the Bible or theology books. The fact that these two hymns found their way into scripture suggests they stood the test of time. That rather than being merely the product of a fleeting religious experience, they reflected the orthodoxy of their day. Certainly when we read them and when Matilda read them so beautifully for us, there was a sense of poetry, or at least of rhythm. And perhaps we can imagine people singing these words in an act of worship. In each of the hymns, the divinity of Christ is clearly stated, but the trajectory each hymn takes is quite different. In the Colossians reading, Christ is before all things. It is Christ in whom all creation has its origin. It is Christ in whom all creation is held together, including, we are told, the socio-political infrastructure. This Christ is beyond time and space. This Christ is the image of the invisible God about whom we thought last week. And so this Christ like God, transcends any category we might like to use. Christ is beyond time, beyond space, beyond gender, beyond race, beyond describing. There is no way we can describe the Christ adequately. That's where the Colossians reading takes us. So in the Gospels, we have a clear sense of the humanity of Jesus, a man who lived a lot of his time in Nazareth, 
had a ministry in Galilee. In Colossians, we have the beyondness of Christ. I think the Philippians hymn helps us to bring those two together. At the heart of the Philippians hymn is the concept of kenosis, of Greek words floating around this morning. Kenosis is the self-emptying of God's Christ to accept the constraints of a human life. It's not a nice scientific logical proof. It can't be because it's a mystery. What it's trying to express defies understanding. Ultimately, it comes down to a declaration of faith. The Gospels are, are rooted very firmly in time and space. Colossians goes beyond both of them. And Philippians gives us a link. The divine Christ becomes the incarnate Jesus. The executed Jesus becomes the ascended Christ. But I can't give you a knockdown proof for it. Just as the doctrine of God, in the end, we have to decide to accept or reject the doctrine that says Jesus Christ was fully human and fully divine. And if we choose to accept that mystery, if we choose to believe that doctrine, that the man who lived 2,000 years ago is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God, then that has to shape the way we live our lives in the here and now. And now it is our privilege to approach God with our prayers for others. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, creator of all, in your love, hear our prayers. We pray for the troubled countries of the world, for the people who suffer at the hands of despotic governments now and in days to come. We think in particular of Syria and the people of Homs, bombarded by forces of their own people because they think differently. We think of our own government and Argentina's, sabre-rattling over possession of the Falklands and the oil it may contain. Has enough blood not been shed over differences of opinion and oil? Lord, you have shown better ways. Consider Nelson Mandela. In his youth, he was thought to be a violent terrorist or a freedom fighter, depending on which side you were on. He endured years of prison, yet came out, and instead of following the bitter way of retribution, he chose the way of reconciliation and is now loved by many of his former enemies. He is ill at the moment, Lord. If it be your will, let him recover to continue showing the better way. Violence and confrontation are not the only answers. Lord, guide those in authority to conciliation 
and cooperation for the good of all. We ask you, Lord, to look kindly on those daily on those who daily work to protect us, to our soldiers, our firemen, our police. We remember today David Rathband, maimed and blinded when doing his duty. This week he lost his battle of coming to terms with his disability. Welcome his lost spirit home, Lord, and console his family and colleagues in their loss. Lord, strengthen our nurses and doctors in their caring, loving work. We think in particular of those nurses ordered to work in areas against their religious scruples. You gave us creative brains, Lord, and this week a medical ethics journal published a work by two young doctors saying there was no difference in terminating the lives of pain-racked or disabled children after birth to that of abortion before birth. They went further, Lord, and suggested a valid reason would be the mother's inability to provide financially. We condemned such attitudes in Nazi Germany. Are we to entertain them now for the sake of convenience and economics? We do not ask for curved intelligence in our scientists, but we pray that you will instill compassion into their hearts and minds. We pray for our Queen as she begins her Diamond Jubilee celebrations. A woman who made a sacred oath at her coronation to serve her people, not until she was too old or too bored, but until her last breath. We pray that she may enjoy this year and give pleasure to those who meet her in recognition of a promise kept and a task well done. We pray for those of our fellowship who are ill, either in body, mind, or spirit. We pray for their recovery, or if not that, then strength to bear their burden. We pray for your support to those who love and care for them, and often feel helpless and alone. We pray for your encouragement and continuing good health in the life of our minister as she strives to bring us closer to you. Finally, Lord, we bring our heartfelt thanks to you, gratitude for the great gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. You were too awesome to be approached face to face and so you gave us Jesus, that we might see you in his eyes, your love and compassion in his life and sacrifice. Through him, our great friend, we dare to ask your aid, knowing for his sake you will grant what is right for us.
and for your great plan, and give us solace when outcomes are not as we wish. Grant us tranquil hearts and minds, Lord. Thy will be done, Lord. Amen. Can we use the words printed on the sheet that the choir sang for us during the offering as our words of blessing? And we will sing an amen at the end of it, if that's okay with you, Paul. Jesus before me, Jesus beside me, Jesus behind me, Jesus surround me. Circle me, Lord, for all of my days. Jesus above me, Jesus below me, Jesus within me, Jesus involved me. 